Welcome to The Logbook. I'm your host, Lucas Weekly. This episode is supported by you, the listeners, through Patreon. Head over to thelogbookpodcast.com for more information. This time we hear some airplane testing stories from the youngest pilot of an airline flight test group, who was 59 at the time. In the military, I did uh, whatever happened to be on our ramp. Uh, we did an awful lot of stuff on the B-47 when it was having some problems because uh, it had been overstressed with that extra weight we were carrying on there on the ramp. And uh, so I did a lot of work on that. Uh, some contract work up there on tires. We'd get up in an airplane in, in a VFR pattern up at Wright Pat. This was in the 47s because I was... I was a, an instructor, and they had one up there. They quit teaching everything because they're phasing the airplane out, and uh, so they they quit teaching out at uh, McConnell at Wichita. So we're it, and uh, so we had to give each other a check ride every six months. We'd be in the traffic pattern, twelve hundred feet, put it on autopilot, stow the controls, get up and swap seats. It's a tandem airplane, so the guy in the front has to move forward. This one jumps up in this seat gets everything going, and he can go back and get in the other one and reconnect the controls. Right in the traffic pattern. We never thought a thing about it. That's that's how they felt, and uh, that's how we were taught. It, it was almost like you're, you know, indestructible. And we never lost anybody in that flight test unit. After being a test pilot in the military since the mid-1950s, our storyteller worked up the ranks to become a commercial airline captain, and after flying in the commercial industry for many years, he was about to retire, but Continental Airlines was hiring these ready-to-retire experienced pilots for their new flight test program. Then we started a flight test division. After I turned 59, we started that and flew till we were, well, I was a much short of 65. Then after they got all the information off of that, they upped the age for the pilots to 65. And this group of civilian test pilots were called the Gummers. At Continental, because we're old, and like, you know, when you get old, you don't have any teeth. So they called us the Gummers. That's such a great name. But the thing was, you couldn't say anything in front of the, the CEO or the vice president. Uh, I mean, you, don't, you couldn't say anything bad about us because we're theirs. So when Continental would do any modifications or maintenance to their planes, these pilots would test them out and make sure that they were ready to be used. And in the mid-90s when all of this was happening, Continental was making a lot of modifications to make a more modern and visually identifiable fleet of airplanes. Uh, we take an airplane, everything inside is completely taken out. All the fairings and all are off it. And 23 days later, that airplane's flying. If everything goes well, and it usually I've seen them as low as 21 days, I've been flying the airplane that's been apart. That's that's how thorough they are. And then if anything comes up, like you know batteries or something that they have a, a vendor that uh, they've got a problem, then of course that's another inspection. <laughs> and because everyone in this flight test group were previous military test pilots, they tested the planes way beyond the boundaries laid out by the factories that made them. What you do on there. You actually stall the airplane, which airline pilots don't stall the airplane. Their approach stalls, and then they recover. On uh, our flying, we actually stall the airplane and know what it's going to do when it stalls. 
and uh, the recoveries and everything. And then you you did high speed runs, which are at least ten percent over the red line of the aircraft, to make sure it doesn't flutter. And the, the flutter test is the one that's sort of scary because if it starts to flutter, you I mean it's instantaneous. You don't have any time. And uh, so we if we take them ten to fifteen percent above what you're going to f- ever fly it at, and the factory did not take it that far. I'd go do the flutter test at 4,000 feet, right out of hobby. They said, why do you level off that low to do that? I said, if it comes apart, I don't fall near as far. So, of course, you don't have a parachute. <laughs> you're, not gonna, you're, not, you're just going <laughs> to fall out of it. But now they will come apart. And uh, the light aircraft, uh, especially, sometimes they'll get them in a thunderstorm or something, and they'll come apart. Sometimes you'd have one... If you pull back too much on the yoke while you're checking out a new guy as a test pilot, sometimes they get upside down. <laughs> All you do is roll it on over. <laughs> it's nothing to it. <laughs> but to see an airliner like that is sort of different. The, I know they did the movie Flight, and I don't think uh, uh, Denzel could ever do what he did in the movie. But anyway, but they uh, were a little bit carried away with that. But yes, they, they do get upside down. And... Uh, if you ever see a picture of a Douglas aircraft that's in a crash, uh, it'll be upside down generally if it's on the, you know, near the ground because it's stalled and it goes right over its back. But I uh, learned a lot of that stuff that the factory didn't know. And we did the same thing when I was in flight tests. I did things with B-47s they didn't know. So the airplanes that you fly are a lot safer than, you know, people sort of insinuate every once in a while they aren't very safe they pretty well are so they've the airplane if you were flying the continental md-80 way back there it's been stalled and it's uh it's had a pretty thorough check well that's that's what we did back in the old days and uh it's good to see some of it you know show up on the airplanes now and uh we got the chance to do all that a lot of times on there uh, we flew into short pretty short strips and before they ever let the airlines check out with Autoland, we checked it out. We did it. And uh, the same thing on the uh, microburst. Actually, we'd jump in an airplane and fly where they're reporting a microburst, and we knew how to recover from it. So we'd go in and, and pick up data, fly, fly down to usually about 150 feet. It took about 70 feet to recover whenever you're in, in the sink, and that's that's pitching to 20 degrees in full power. The microburst comes with a temperature dew point spread that's quite wide, 25 degrees or better. The microburst generally is between uh, about 79 and 94 degrees, they figured. And what happens on there, you get a force that actually just about pushes the airplane into the ground. The Delta 1011 and, and uh, Dallas got into it. Sometime a company with thunderstorms, sometimes not. Denver, not. Uh, we had an airplane up there that uh, I was flying the same trip one day later. 727 takes off at uh, Stapleton. Can't fly. Flies right back into the ground. And no one was killed on it. They were a couple of injuries, but nobody was killed. Then the, the Delta thing, when it came along, was the one that they started using some funding and find out why this was happening. But the, uh, the, there's a downforce in it, uh, and you may not be near a cloud. This gets downforce, and the airplane, 
All you do is to recover is pitch to about 20, full power, and hold that. And it may not, the airspeed may be way below what you normally see. And it may be down in the range where it normally would be stalling, and it isn't. And it flies out of it, if you're lucky. And I've, I've encountered that in a light aircraft. And wasn't quite so good with that one because it didn't fly out of it. It couldn't climb fast enough. So it leaves parts. <laughs> but we did that. We did the uh, auto landing. did the uh, fire detection. And then the uh, suppressant. And that was sort of an interesting project. And what it does, it picks up any, in the cargo bins, any any fire or smoke. It picks it up and transmits it to readout in the actually lights in the cockpit. And it can be, if it's set in automatic, it can go ahead and use the uh, disparent to put out the fire. What it does, it, it's halon. Halon uh, takes all the oxygen out of the air. And, uh, so, and it floats like water. You can actually see the smoke level as you change the pitch of an airplane. You can see the smoke level uh, there, just like you'd have a glass of water and tip it, you know, and see the water level. And uh, that's how it, how it does. And uh, that started because of the the uh, value jet crashed out of Miami. It was a on board fire, and it was a preventable thing. But anyway, that's what happened there, and that's why we were doing those tests. And now on the airplanes that you're flying, you have that uh, detection and uh, all, and suppress it. I have a friend that was flying a, a Hawker. Somebody, it's a GA, you know, type thing. And somebody goes back and puts out a cigarette in the trash can in the, in the uh, blue room. And uh, smoke's pouring out. Copilot runs back there. Halon, they just gotten the Halon extinguisher, bends down to spray it, passes out. <laughs> so now my friend's up here flying this thing. Copilot's laying on the floor, passed out in the back, and the smoke's still there. <laughs> so we learned about that. But it was all these little things, you know, feed on each other. As, uh, as we get information, we pass it on to the like people at another place. The person that developed the system to start with did it for uh, racing airplanes, and they uh, he developed it for that. We had it in a Pitts uh, S2, put it on there. I didn't have it on the S1 because it's so small. You'd the Halon's not that predictable what we could do, but the S2 was where we hauled uh, and trained in. We had Halon on it, but uh, then they the airlines call him up and say, "Do you still have all these?" The information on this and uh can you help us and he he got that contract and i flew with him he would sit back and watch the through the clear vision floor panel watch what was going on so we got to meet those people just i mean just mundane things go in and put your brakes on it uh, to the anti-skid range uh, and at the same speed you pull off the runway the engineers run out and watch the tapes as they melt the little marks on there and uh, at that time, the airlines were not using nitrogen. The Air Force was. And nitrogen, nitrogen doesn't expand and blow up. And the airlines, when I first started flying, they were using uh, just compressed air. And I talked to our engineering people, and it didn't take very long. It's cheaper to, to uh, set up the, uh, the tanks at 
places instead of having compressors at your outstations. And uh, so we used nitrogen. We didn't have any more tire problems in the airlines. Stuff like that we'd, we found out about, you know. And uh, those engineers that run stick their head right up again. That I mean, they're right there looking at a tire. And what if it had blown up, you know. But that, we'd do that. We'd come in and put the brakes on exactly at 110 knots and then just stand on them. And the anti-skid releases and, and just like in a car with anti-skid brakes. Does that. We did stuff like that. Uh, for anti-ice, we'd run a test beds on that. Those kind of things. And then with the airline, like I said, you know, they come to you and, and the airline furnishes the test crew and their the airplane. Then they uh, test out these systems and then they use a lot of them. The Autoland was always the, the most fun thing because uh, we tried it. And then we could take, for delivery of an airplane, we could take uh, a line co-pilot which they had a big list of those, first in, first out, you know. They'd buy their trip and they'd fly with us. So I'm going out of uh, Newark, taking an airplane out, a uh, test airplane out to Santa Barbara, and I had this lad. I said, have you ever landed at Chicago O'Hare? No. I said, okay, you're about to. <laughs> and he thought that was great because I let him do that. I said, okay, what would you like to see? I'd like to see that auto land <laughs> that you guys have been talking about. And... uh so it's, it's, you're sitting there, and it's on auto throttle. The uh, airplane comes down, and the throttles come back. And you think, oh, this isn't going to be pretty. And uh, at about 50 feet, when you cross the threshold, here comes the throttles back. You don't touch anything, because if you do, you're going to mess this up. So the airplane comes in, flares. It's got auto spoilers and auto brakes. Don't touch anything. You'll mess it up. Auto spoilers come up. Nose comes on down, you know. just It should do it, and they later fixed it so it would do it when the nose gear touched. But on the earlier ones, it didn't do that. Sometimes that nose gear would come down pretty harsh, and the brakes come on. And uh, it'll stop on the center line of the runway. All you do is kick off the autopilot and taxi it off. But these kids would always, well, kids because they're much younger, I, I still, when I was teaching these people to, uh, back as an instructor, they're uh, about 21, 23, or 4 or 5 years old. I still think of them as kids, and now they're senior pilots, and some of them retiring, you know. And I still think of them as my kids because that's, that's what they were when I taught them. But they thought that was the most wonderful thing. It's something they'd hear about, you know, and they couldn't do it. Then we'd, tell, uh, we'd have to tell the people, Okay, uh, we're co going into Houston with an airplane, and the airlines aren't flying that. They can't. So they see this Continental airplane taxiing in and, and tell them that this was a test flight. This was not, not a passenger flight, because everybody, all the others are going to quarrel about, well, they got here, how come we can't, you know, and all. So they had to play that game, too. That was sort of fun. So the test pilot really gets... He, he knows the airplane better than anybody else because he's seen all these things and it's it's really about the best job you could ever get. Al Burrell was the youngest pilot in the Gummers group and he left in 1999 after flying over 3,000 hours for Continental testing their planes in that time period. 
Today, he's 80 years old and is an FAA certified mechanic, so he helps out his neighbors in his community fixing up and maintenancing their lightsport aircraft. Al also loves aerobatics and is getting back into it for fun, and currently he has over 33,000 flight hours logged. That's amazing. More information and pictures related to the story can be found in the article at thelogbookpodcast.com. Special thanks goes out to Megan Brock, our recording and interviewing assistant. This episode was supported directly by your donations. If you enjoy the show, you can support its production by becoming a patron. Through Patreon, you set a donation level that is given every time a new episode is released, and you can always set a monthly limit so you don't go over your budget. Depending on the amount donated, you are granted access to different rewards that are as simple as hearing a sneak preview to the next episode, all the way up to exclusive content that didn't make it into the show. Any amount is helpful, and the more that's donated, the more the show can improve. Head over to our website, thelogbookpodcast.com, and click on the Patreon banner at the side of the page to start supporting. If you have a story about anything in aviation, we would love to hear it, and it may even become an episode of The Logbook. You can send us an email by using the contact page on our website. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you come back for the next entry in The Logbook.